tonight. I dare you to give God a shout of praise. Somebody ought to do it like the Bible says. Clap your hands, all you people, and shout unto God with a voice of triumph. You've often heard me say this before, but I feel it in my bones tonight. Many of you understand and know that I, I, I'm a hunter. I'm into the outdoors and into hunting. And when I first started learning how to hunt, the first kind of animals they taught me how to hunt was predators. It's still my favorite kind of hunting to do to date. And one of the first things they taught me is if you're going to attract a predator... The easiest and best way to do it is with what they call a distress call. You mimic the sound of their prey in distress. And the sound of a, a wounded rabbit or a, a, a different kind of an animal in distress will capture the attention of that predator. I remember the first time they did it, we walked out in, and for acres you could see nothing uh, all around and we hid in the bushes and started making the sound of wounded animal. And within just a few moments, looking through the binoculars, for, for many, many, many yards away, all of a sudden I could see the pointed ears of a coyote as it began making its way. Uh, it was able to pick up the sound of that wounded animal from many, many, many yards away. And it came all the way in because it understood the sound of distress from the prey. And the Bible tells us that Satan goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He, it's not that he can devour anybody, but he's looking for an opportunity of those he might be able to devour. Can I tell you that as it is in the natural, so it is in the supernatural that the predator of your soul can pick up on the sound of, of an animal in distress. He can pick up the sound of a Christian in distress. And so when you walk into the house of God and you and you've got you know your your body language is sad and, and your 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 worship isn't as boisterous and your your mouth is filled with complaining or worry instead of praise. Your adversary, the devil understands there's a Christian right there that's in a vulnerable condition. That's why you can't come into the house of God like you've been beat up all day long. I don't care what you've been through. I don't care what hell has sent your way. You need to make it up in your mind that when you come into the house of God, you don't dare let the devil see you sweat. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Enter into his courts with praise. I believe that's why the writer said when you shout, there's a particular sound. It needs to be with a voice of triumph. When you open your mouth, the devil needs to hear victory. When you open your mouth, the enemy needs to know I'm not on the menu. I'm not easy prey. 
You coming after the wrong person tonight, baby. Uh, hey! Uh, somebody ought to take a moment right here uh, and turn your sorrow uh, into joy. Uh, turn your fear uh, into worship. Uh, open up your mouth uh, and shout unto God uh, with a voice of triumph. Sometimes you just got to say, not today, Satan. You knocking on the wrong door. You showed up at the wrong house. Come on, somebody. Don't think I'm a chump. Don't think I'm easy prey. You better pack a lunch if you coming after me. Oh, yeah. Because I'm more than a conqueror through Christ that strengthened me. One more time, somebody put your hands together and open up your mouth. Hallelujah. Shout at your neighbor. Tell him I'm victorious. I'm victorious. Hallelujah. Uh, high five about six people on the way to your seat. Uh, tell them my name is victory. My name is victory. Hallelujah. You excited to be in the house of the Lord tonight? Come on, you excited to be in the house of the Lord tonight? I'm telling you, God has been doing some amazing things. You can be seated for just a moment. Did we not sit in heavenly places this past weekend on Sunday night and Sunday morning? How many of you one more time appreciate the ministry of Brother Collins and Brother Stewart? They did an incredible job following the Holy Ghost Sunday. and uh, Sunday, Pete was baptized in Jesus' name and filled with the Holy Ghost. We're grateful for that. So good to see all of our guests in the house of the Lord this evening. So good to see brother and sister Pope home tonight. Amen. And uh, we have been uh, journeying through the word of the Lord on Tuesday nights with a focused uh, perspective on the subject of holiness, which is a paramount subject to the believer, to the Christian. Amen. Hallelujah. The Bible says, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which, tell your neighbor, without which no man shall see the Lord. Amen. Them old timers used to sing an old song. They sing, this train is a clean train. This train. This train is a clean train. This train. This train is a clean train. Only way you ride is in Jesus' name. Or they say, only way you're saved, you got to be holy. This train is a clean train. This how many of y'all on the train to heaven tonight? Amen. And the word of the Lord has been so rich and powerful in the house of the Lord. And so tonight we want to continue our study on the topic of holiness. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians 
chapter number 11. As you stand, we're going to read the word of the Lord. Use this as a, an entry point tonight. While you're standing, uh, we are looking forward to this Sunday, All Nations Sunday. It's going to be amazing. Uh, the video promo that you saw tonight, you will see it later on this evening posted on social media. Uh, we're asking everybody, share it with everybody you can. Post it on your wall, on your post. Uh, I mean, I, don't, I can't even keep up with all the stuff they do nowadays. But share it with everybody you can and uh, text it, email it. And I believe if we'll fill this house up, God will fill this house up. I'm going to say that one more time. I believe if we'll fill the house up, God will fill the house up. Amen, somebody. And uh, we're excited about that. Friday night uh, evening, we could use as many people's help as possible. And so if you have availability to help us Friday evening, please see Pastor Sloss immediately after the service. And uh, we, we, we greatly appreciate your help. Now, as you're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, remember that we have been studying the subject of holiness uh, and, and we, we understand the etymology of the word holy, that it means W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy or completely, to, to belong and to be separated, sanctified, completely unto God. Amen? And what that means for us in living for God is that holiness is not just an inside thing and it's not just an outside thing, but it is body, soul, and spirit. God doesn't just want part of you. He wants all of you. Amen. I need some help in the building. If he's got your heart, he also wants your body. Amen, somebody. If he's got your soul, he wants your spirit. Amen. And so for those who are maybe just joining us tonight, maybe you're online uh, streaming tonight and you have not had the privilege of being here for the past several, several weeks as we've made our journey through this, I encourage you to go back and listen to these lessons in succession. Uh, we, we want to make sure that you understand uh, that, that holiness is not just uh, about the outside man, but it is the complete man. And uh, if you have been following along and been here for these series of lessons, then you understand that. Amen, somebody. Amen. We don't want anybody to run around saying all people care about is the way you look or all we care about. That's not true. The outward man is simply a reflection of holiness working on the inside man. Amen. When you get the Holy Ghost, the Spirit of God begins to work from the inside out. He starts changing the way you think. Uh, he starts changing the way you speak. Uh, and consequently, he begins to change the way that you behave, the way that you live. And inevitably, the Holy Ghost will begin to change the way that we present ourselves. Amen? Both unto God and unto men. And so last week we delved into uh, the subject. Our, our title last week was uh, Power and Honor uh, Because of Your Hair, something to that effect. Uh, and tonight I want to take it to another level with another subject. And so 
We are going back to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse number 4. I want to read one verse of scripture before you're seated. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 4 says, Every man praying or prophesying. Now, sometimes when we read the scripture and it says every man, we understand that it is not gender specific, that God is dealing with mankind and humanity as a whole. But in this particular scripture, the word man is gender specific. He is dealing with man and he says, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. And so you may be seated tonight. I'm gonna to withhold my lesson title for just a moment. As we begin to study 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we, we dealt with it extensively last week, we understand that the chapter deals with some primary principles concerning authority and submission. It deals with gender distinction, and it deals with elements of the supernatural. Things like praying and prophesying. Things like power with the angels. And so this chapter brings an interesting intersection in our walk with God concerning submission to authority as well as power with God. And it deals uh, with gender distinction. This is a powerful subject especially in today's day and age because we live in a society that has been degraded unto the place that it is doing its best to erase the order of God. It is doing its best to fly in the face of the order of God in this world. The Bible says that the creation has no power over the creator, that the clay has no power over the potter, and yet we live in a world that, that is totally rebelling against the idea of authority and order that is completely rebelling against the idea that God created male and female and that who we are is the assignment of God himself and that somehow they are trying to propagate the idea that as the creation, we have the power to reject and rebel against the creator and, and subvert our identity as a man or a woman. Am I in the right church? Our society is working overtime to the place that they are now in, in many places. They have ceased to put male or female on the birth certificate because they do not want uh, a child to grow up being put in a box 
so that later on somehow they can make a choice of what gender they want to be. Can I just remind somebody that might be listening here tonight, maybe on the internet, that you do not have that choice, that it is not your prerogative. The fact that you have been given life, that you have been blessed with the opportunity of life is a gift from God Almighty. And it is God who has assigned to us the male and the female. They are promoting the idea of a term called gender reassignment. Can I just tell you there is no such thing. It is a fairy tale. You might be able to mutilate the body, but you can't reassign gender. Come on, I'm going to need some help in here tonight. I said you might be able to mutilate and abuse the physical body, but that doesn't mean that you're able to reassign your gender. Because no matter what you do to your physical body, your soul and your spirit, your genetics still testify that you are who God created you to be. And one day when you stand before God, he will not recognize your preferred pronouns. I said he will not recognize your preferred pronouns, but he will call you by name. He will call you by what he created you to be because it is the order, it is the authority of God. We began to study last week how beginning many, many years ago and very prominently in U.S. culture in the 20s, we could see society begin to rebel against this order of God and, and, and the United States being a nation that was founded on Christian principles. Did you know that in the schools that, that the primary subject used to be the Bible? That, that reading, writing, and arithmetic uh, were second and tertiary and quadrantary subjects that the primary subject uh, used to be the Word of God? That's not the society we live in today. As a matter of fact, is this all right tonight? I'm just setting some, some context. That, that's not the case today. We, matter of fact, I, I've been listening even this week. There are, there are legal battles taking place right now because concerned parents want to remove books that have been uh, regulated. They have, been, they have become standard issue in public school systems that promote uh, homosexuality and lesbianism. But beyond that, hypersexuality. They are pornographic uh, in nature. They are accessible to your first grader and your third grader. There are classes now. They are pushing the agenda that your kids have to learn about it. They have to be taught uh, and it has to be normalized in there. I'm just going to tell you something right now. If you are a parent in this building, you ought to be doing everything in your power to get your children out of the public school systems. I don't care what excuse the enemy wants to give you. Uh, there is no way in the world uh, if you have the Holy Ghost uh, that 
you can be comfortable uh, dropping your children off for hours uh, every day, uh, being taught, uh, being indoctrinated. Uh, come on, I'm preaching to somebody in the building today. It is, it is a... It is the breeding ground. It is the, the place of indoctrination. They are teaching your children to defy you and your authority. Your kid can't get a tattoo until they're 18. But they can request gender reassignment and medical supplies to begin hormone treatments without your permission and without your knowledge at whatever age that, come on, I'm preaching where we're living today. There's no way in the world my children belong in that kind of an environment. The kids of society are being raised now in multiple generations of godless homes that have embraced the confusion of the world. And they are the children that they are running around with, their peers, their influencers, the one they spend the most time. Come on, if you've got the Holy Ghost, there ought to be alarm bells going off in your mind that say, not my baby. I'm going to do whatever it takes to get my baby in the right environment. And so this is the society that we live in today. And, and it is no question that as we begin to backtrack in time and in society that we can identify the violation of biblical principles that has led our society into its current condition. Amen, somebody. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14 that even nature itself teaches us. Last week I made the statement that nature is a teacher. You can learn a lot about the nature of God by studying creation. Nature itself teaches us. And I don't have time to dive into that, but a lot of this text deals with the importance of gender distinction and the specificity by which God defines a man and a woman. And the enemy hates this. He hates it. And so Paul's point in this chapter concerning the man is that his head be uncovered. It is his distinction different than that of a woman. And so tonight's lesson, and, and, and just hang with me for a little while, is going to be the truth about facial hair. The truth about facial hair. Last week we talked a little bit about the 60s, which, which became the flashpoint, if you will, of society in this ideology of rebellion. And we talked about the hippie movement that really became the beacon of identity where society as a whole began to embrace the idea of rebellion against order, rebellion against the nature of God. And what was it? that told men that as a sign of rebellion, 
Quit cutting your hair and start growing a beard. Who came up with that? I'll tell you what taught them. Nature itself. Nature itself bore witness. And it was simply a manifestation of the creation rebelling against the order of God. They begin to rebel against everything that was God's order concerning men and women. And so when we begin to look at this subject in scripture, beards and facial hair, beards in scripture had a particular distinction in that they made a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles. The Gentiles viewed it one way and God viewed it another way. And God taught his people how he felt about it. If you were to look in Genesis chapter 41 and verse 14, backing up a little bit in biblical history, the scripture tells us that Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon and he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. Before Joseph could present himself in front of Pharaoh, he had to clean himself up. He had been in the dungeon and so he had to be washed and he had to put on new raiment and before he could be deemed presentable to Pharaoh, he had to shave himself. If you study history, you will find that Egyptians were known as a very clean people. I had the privilege along with Pastor Hammond several years ago to visit uh, Egypt and you would find that in society they placed a premium on the idea of cleanliness. They were very well known for uh, the apothecary and their uh, development of perfumes and things that were cleansing agents and rituals to the human body. And so they only let their beard grow as a sign of mourning or shame. They mourned because of moral failure. And they did not shave as a sign of their shame, but rather they would grow a beard. It was, it was a rarity in Egyptian culture. As a matter of fact, while we were there visiting Egypt and touring many of the ancient historic sites, we got to look at thousands and thousands of hieroglyphics and not one time on any hieroglyphic did I see the depiction of a man with a beard. Now, some of you might say, well, what about the pharaohs and they had the big goatee looking thing? Did you know that that wasn't really facial hair? Those were part of a mask that they wore. They would not grow out their facial hair, but, but idolatry was the, was the identifying marker of the Egyptians. And so the pharaohs and the queens, 
that the head always signified identity. And so you would always see pictures of a king or a queen and they would replace the human head with the head of one of their gods. And they would wear, literally wear masks over their head that symbolized the idolatry. And so that big looking chin mark was part of the Egyptian mask. And so uh, they, they did not grow their beard as a sign. Uh, they, 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 they would shave it uh, as uh, a sign of their shame, but they would grow a beard as a sign of their shame. Conversely, the Hebrews would shave as a sign of their mourning. Their customs were the opposite of each other. Now you can refer and refer to number one scripture, but if you want additional reference material to some of what I'm talking about, you can get the book Manners and Customs from the Bible. Some of this you can find on page 223 of that book if you so choose. But why did the Hebrews wear beards. Second Samuel chapter 10 and verse number four, this is uh, where the, uh, the king of the Assyrians dies. And so Hanun, who is the new king, uh, David wants to honor him. And so he sends servants to bring a word to Hanun. But he is convinced by his men that, that David, in fact, is sending these servants as spies. And so as part of him shaming David's servants, the Bible says in verse number four that Hanun shaved off half of each man's beard. Because in the Hebrew culture, beards were a sign of manhood. And so slaves were made to shave their beards as a token of servanthood. Shaving the beard in the Hebrew culture was a sign of humility. It was a sign of shame. It was a sign of mourning and servitude. And for those in the Hebrew culture who wore beards, there was certain specificity from God about how they were to wear the beard. The book of Leviticus chapter 19 and verse number 27 says that ye shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. Later on in the chapter, it says that they could not shave the part of uh, their beard that connects to the head and the face, what we would call the sideburns. And so it is understood by biblical scholars and historians that their hair was not to be cut in a circle from one temple to the other like the Arabic culture. You understand that the Egyptians were, were conquered by, uh, by the Arabs and to the point that they even eradicated their original Coptic Egyptian language and it was replaced with the current uh, Arabic language. And part of that culture that carried over was that styling of the facial hair. And so God made specific uh, instructions that they were not to
to trim and mar the corners of the facial hair so that they would not look like the Egyptians. He did not want them to appear like the pagan and the Gentile nations of the day. And we live in a society, in a church world, that will tell you it doesn't matter what you look like. I'm sorry, but you cannot be a student of God's word and literally feel like God does not care how you present yourself unto him. How many of you remember Romans chapter 12 from last week? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. If God did not care how we present our bodies, then his word would not tell us that it matters. But God said, when you present your body just like your inner man has to be holy. Uh, I want your outer man to be holy. Uh, I don't want it to look like the world. Uh, I don't want it to represent the world. Uh, I don't want it to communicate the wrong. One place he said, know ye not uh, that your body, shout your body, uh, is the temple uh, of the Holy Ghost, uh, which ye have of God. Uh, ye are not your own, uh, but ye are bought with a price. Uh, God said, your body, when you receive the Holy Ghost, uh, becomes my temple. Uh, and when I live inside of that temple, uh, I don't want people to look at the outside of my temple uh, and mistake it for the temple uh, of a pagan God. Uh, I don't want them to look at the temple and mistake it uh, as somebody that is worshiping uh, a different. When they look at you, uh, I want them to know those are the people uh, of the name. Uh, that is a holy uh, temple uh, which ye have of God ye are not your. therefore uh, glorify God in your body our appearance means something to God and God spends significant time in his word dealing with appearance and specifically the head of the man and the woman, because it communicates so much. And so Leviticus 19 delineates this for us. It is important unto God, so important that he said, I'm going to tell you exactly what I want you to do. He told them in the Old Testament, if you're going to grow a beard, it's a sign of mourning. If you're going to grow a beard, that's what the culture was of the Egyptians. And for the Hebrews, if you're going to grow a beard, you can't touch it or trim it or round the corners or shape it. In the Old Testament, I want you to follow me. Don't, don't get lost. I need you to, to focus tonight. This is powerful. In the Old Testament, the man and the woman were to be covered. Why? Because there was no revelation yet of Christ's headship. Part of the man covering the head was not just the top of his head. It dealt with the man's entire head. His face is part of his head. And there was no revelation of the headship 
of Christ in the Old Testament. So if you were to go to Israel today, you would say, and I've been there, I've spent time there, I've been to the Western Wall, I've been to the Wailing Wall, and, and if you were to go there today, you would see the Orthodox Jews and the rabbis with their head covered with a yarmulke and a full untrimmed beard because they are living according to the Old Testament order of covering. God would not let them shave the hair where the beard and the hair on the head met. So you'll see them with an uncut beard and the top of their head will be cut but right here will be long and flowing because they are living under an Old Testament revelation of covering. They do not believe uh, that Jesus Christ uh, was the Messiah, that he was God manifest in the flesh uh, and so they do not recognize Christ uh, in the authority of headship. God would not let them shave the hair where the beard and the hair on the head met. And then the point I am trying to make is society says it's just not important. But the scripture deals extensively with it. The head in Egyptian culture was always involved with idolatry. I already mentioned to you that they would frequently use head pieces to signify and the shaping and the design of the head spoke about their devotion to particular gods and their understanding of a supernatural connectivity through the head. It was so important to them that when they buried the pharaohs, they, they had only the greatest artisans uh, craft the burial mask uh, because they believed that if it wasn't just right that there would be a misidentity uh, and that perhaps the wandering soul of that pharaoh could not find it. They understood the connection of the head to the supernatural. Now 2 Timothy 3.16 says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why would God put it in his word that a man in the Old Testament could not shave a particular part of his head if he was going to grow a beard because it was important to him? Most scholars believe that it was because many of those practices and customs were related to idol worship. Now, it's important to understand that concerning some things in the Word of God, there is often a change of context made by God, not made by man, but by God. When you look at the Old Testament, Versus the New Testament. Follow me. There's often a fulfillment of the Old Testament that brings a new revelation, i.e., the revelation of the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, they understood that we kept the Sabbath as a particular day of the week. But when Jesus came, 
and the Holy Ghost came. It was not an eradication of the Sabbath, but it was a fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so that's why the Bible says this is the rest wherein the weary shall rest. And now instead of only experiencing the Sabbath on the first day of the week, you can experience the Sabbath every time you pray in the Holy Ghost. You can find the rest of the Sabbath on Sunday, on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, on Thursday, on Friday, on Saturday. This is why we are not seven day Adventist because when the Holy Ghost came it's not just the seventh day but every day becomes the Sabbath day. It is not a contradiction of the Old Testament. It is not God changing his mind. It is God giving us a revelation of the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is why there was such a struggle with the Pharisees who would berate Jesus for healing somebody on the Sabbath day. And in one place, Jesus looked at them and said, you can't take new cloth and sew it onto an old garment because it just messes the whole thing up. And later on, he would go on to say that you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Why? Because the wineskin, when the new wine went into that fresh skin, the effervescence, the expansion of the wine, that, that skin had to stretch until it fit the, the full body of the wine that was inside. But after settling long enough, that skin no longer would stretch. And it became hard, unable to flex. And so he said, you can't put new revelation into a vessel that doesn't have the ability to stretch its understanding. I'm trying to explain something to the Pharisees, but they're unable to expand their ability to understand the revelation. And so they don't know why I'm healing on the Sabbath because they are locked into an old paradigm of revelation. And, and you, find, you find examples of this all through Scripture. You, you find it concerning the Sabbath. You, you, you find it concerning eating things like pork. In the Old Testament, they, they understood we don't eat these animals. They are unclean. There is a, a, a covenant between us and God, and, and it's unclean. We can't eat pork chops. Lord, help them. But in the New Testament... Peter has a vision and he sees all the animals on the sheet that's a good dream right there and the Lord says Peter rise slay and eat this is Sister Manning's favorite scripture right here rise slay and eat personal joke you can ask after church rise slay and Peter responds like an old wineskin. 
He said, not so, my Lord. I would never touch an unclean animal because you taught us uh, way over here in the Old Testament in the Scriptures. And the Lord gives him a revelation and says, what I have called clean, let thou not call uh, unclean. Uh, oh, what was he doing? He was expanding revelation uh, that there is a different time that has now come. Uh, what was he doing? He was preparing Peter for God to open the door of salvation to the Gentiles because up until this point they only had a revelation of God through genealogy, uh, through genetics. Uh, they didn't understand that he wanted to be the Savior and the Father of the entire world. Uh, and so God is trying to stretch uh, their revelation to understand it's not just Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and your forefathers. preparing them for the Gentile revival that was about to take place. And thank God, we can eat pork. Now, you may prefer not to eat pork because of dietary preferences. And that's okay. We'll have a good time going to Famous Dave's together. Because when we order the family special, I'll eat all the ribs and you can have the salad. God bless you. Amen. Go ahead with your bad self. And so, we cannot change the New Testament principle regarding beards and facial hair just because beards were a normal part of culture before the death of Jesus. The New Testament brings fulfillment and revelation of Jesus and headship that changes our understanding of the head of a man, of his covering and being uncovered. Somebody said amen. So we're going to get to that. But there is a question, an age-old question, and I want to just get to this question now and get it out of the way so it's not a stumbling block the rest of the sermon. There's an age-old question that has been, always been asked. What's wrong with beards? Jesus had one. Anybody ever heard that before? Maybe you've asked that before. Well, I want, I want to give you biblical answers to that tonight. Number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. There is only one verse in the entire Bible regarding Jesus and facial hair. Only one verse. It was a prophecy in the Old Testament. And here is what it said. Isaiah chapter 50, verse number six. Now here's an important note. This was not a firsthand documentation. This was not written by a contemporary of Jesus. This was not somebody who saw with their own eyes or even lived in the same time period as Jesus did. This was a prophetic writing in the book of Isaiah, not a historical record. How many of you understand the difference from a literary perspective? This is not history. This is prophecy. And here is what he says. He is speaking first person in the prophetic, and he says, I gave my back, he's speaking as Jesus, I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them 
that plucked off the hair. That's it. That's all the Bible has to say ever, anywhere concerning Jesus and facial hair. Now, you know as well as I that you cannot establish doctrine off of one phrase of one scripture in the entire word of God. You cannot substantiate a, a principle based off of one phrase in the word of God that is in the context that I just gave you. Number one, it does not reference the word beard. That's important. Why is that important? Because all over the Old Testament, the word beard is used to describe somebody with a beard. And this scripture does not use the word beard to describe the hair that was on his face. Secondly, some people would say, well, he was a rabbi, which meant he would have, you know, been following that Levitical order. Number one, they called him a rabbi because he was a teacher, but not because he was a Levitical priest. He was not from the tribe of Levi, but of Judah. He was not a Levite. There's a remote possibility that because he is of the lineage of David that he could have been considered a Davidian priest, but he was not living according to the Levitical standards that we read earlier in the scripture. Now, here's something else to consider. They did not have Norelco and Bic and Braun in those days. They didn't have nice, clean razors like we have. And there is a major difference between not being clean-shaven and growing a beard. Can I get an amen? If you would have saw me at 2 o'clock this afternoon, I was not clean-shaven. Oh, it got quiet. <laughs> that doesn't mean that I was trying to grow a beard. Brother Trevor's going like this right here. And there, there's a difference. Why, why is that important? Because for many men, if they went unshaven for three or four days, you could pluck the hair from their cheek. Some men saying, I wish I could. The point is, is that there is nothing in this single verse strong enough to establish the justification for wearing a beard because Jesus had one. Amen, somebody. Then the other thing to note is that concerning the torture and suffering of Jesus, the scripture is very explicit. His visage was marred. I mean, the, the Bible is very descriptive. And despite the prophecy found in Isaiah of them plucking hair from his cheek, Nowhere in the New Testament are there, is there anything in the account of his sufferings that says anything about them pulling out hair from his beard. In none of the New Testament verses or accounts is there any mention of pulling or plucking of the beard of Jesus. There is no evidence that he had a beard other than perhaps maybe several days normal growth of hair on his face the situation is this Isaiah prophesied in context 
with practices occurring in his day. A prophet is a seer. And the prophecies sometimes reach so far into the future that they have no real context in their everyday life to even describe what it was that they were seeing in prophecy. For example, if you read the book of Revelation concerning the last days that we live in today, there is no way that John could describe the things that you and I see today with language that would clearly identify. And so he had to use the language that he had and the examples of imagery that he had to try and describe for us the best he could a 2022 prophecy centuries and centuries and centuries ago. And so this is the case. In, in Isaiah's day, he prophesied in context with practices occurring in his day. One of the forms of torture particularly done by the Assyrians during the time of Isaiah, was to pull the beard along with attached chunks of skin out of the chin and the cheeks. And so as he begins to prophesy, sometimes through a glass darkly, he is trying to describe Jesus being tortured in any kind of explanation and language that he can to illustrate and communicate. It's important to note that additionally, the word beard or beards, although it is listed multiple times in the Old Testament, is not listed one time in the New Testament. Not one time. Nor is there any reference to hair on the face anywhere in the New Testament. Most biblical scholars believe that somewhere between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the custom of wearing beards had pretty much ceased. Even when you start looking into the intertestamental uh, writings, the, uh, the Apocrypha, and you look at the pseudopographic works of Philo in the Greek and Josephus, in the Greek, all of the intertestamental literature, the most important works of the apostolic fathers in the Greek, it's important to note that even in their writings, there is no mention in any of these works of beard or beards or hair on the face or shaving the face or the beard by the Jews either immediately before, during, or soon after the New Testament period. This is important because if, in fact, beards played the major role that people believe they might have in the Old Testament and they were written about, why is it that the language is completely absent in the New Testament and in the intertestamental period of literature? Because they believe that the wearing of beards in the Hebrew culture had pretty much vanished at that point. Again, lending itself to the idea and the probability of Jesus not wearing a beard. Now, when you study scripture, you understand, as already stated, but we're going to get into it deeper, that the Hebrew people shaved their beards as a sign of mourning. Sackcloth and ashes, fasting and shaving the beard 
and the head were all a prescribed part of mourning under judgmental circumstances in the scripture. For example, if the nation received a word of judgment from a prophet, they would shave their head and their beards and would put on sackcloth with ashes and they would fast as a sign of their mourning. Somebody say their mourning. That's an important key. They would even hire professional mourners to try to ensure that the proper level of mourning was accomplished to evoke the right sentiment of humility in repentance toward God and his judgment. But in the New Testament, Jesus changes the paradigm of mourning just like he changed the paradigm of the Hebrew idea of the Sabbath, just like he changes the Hebrew idea of atonement. I mentioned it early in, in, in Romans chapter 12. They had to overcome the Old Testament wineskin of offering animals unto God as an atonement or a covering. They were so entangled in the order of the Old Testament that they had to bring bulls and goats that they often overlooked and it had to be re-emphasized this revelation that they no longer had to offer the blood of animals. John the Baptist, when he's standing in the River Jordan and Jesus comes, announces to the world, behold, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. He has come to take away uh, the sins uh, of the world. There was a paradigm shift uh, of revelation that began to happen concerning atonement. Uh, that's why in Hebrews 12 uh, when he says you're going to present uh, your bodies uh, a living uh, sacrifice. Uh, this was a paradigm shift. Uh, the sacrifice was always an animal, not a human being. And the animal always died it didn't live. God didn't come to do away with the idea of atonement. Uh, he came to fulfill uh, atonement uh, by becoming the lamb uh, slain from the foundation uh, of the world. And the same way uh, that he brings a new revelation concerning these things, he brings a brand new uh, revelation concerning the idea of mourning in Scripture. They were used to as a culture and a nation and a people that there was a particular prescribed method for letting God know that we are humbling ourselves. There is a prescribed method for us showing God that we are going to lower ourselves in humility for what we have done. And it included a shaving of the beard. But now there is a paradigm shift that's happening. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14 through 16 says, Then came to him the disciples of John, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast oft or often? But thy disciples fast not. The disciples of John and the Pharisees were like, Here we are fasting. And we never see your disciples fast. Here they are again stuck in a lack of revelation. So here's Jesus' answer. Follow this. He said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn 
There's that word. You following me? Can the children of the bride chamber mourn? Remember, fasting was a part of mourning. As long as the bridegroom is with them? He's trying to explain to them, why would you mourn when the bridegroom hasn't left you yet? They're not mourning because right now they're present with the bridegroom. He was also trying to give them a revelation of who he was. As long as the bridegroom is with them. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them. And then they shall fast. This is him trying to get them to transition. The next verse is where he talks to them about no man putteth a piece of new cloth unto an old garment. And so the Old Testament prescription for mourning was shaving the beard. Shaving the head, sackcloth and ashes and fasting. It was how you removed shame from a family or a nation. But Jesus says, we are not going to attach the old way to the new way. But the new way will replace the old way by fulfilling the old way. Are you with me tonight? Punch your neighbor, tell him, wake up, we're at the good part. And so listen, this is, this is important, don't miss this. While Jesus was on earth, they were in a dispensational transition where everything was changing from a natural relationship with God to a spiritual relationship with God. They were entirely entrenched with the ideology of their forefathers. Abraham, Isaac, and our forefathers worshipped in these mountains. And their entire concept of God and a Savior was based on your bloodline, on your genetics, on being born as a Hebrew. But they are in the middle of a transition of dispensation. You understand theologically that a dispensation is a period of time in which God deals with man in a particular way. And up to this point God had dealt with his people uh, from the standpoint uh, point of genetics uh, but God was about to shift the dispensation uh, so that now uh, you are not part of the genetics of God uh, by your physical birth uh, but you are going to become a part of God's family by spiritual birth uh, this is why Jesus speaks uh, with Nicodemus in John 3 and 5 uh, and says except a man be born uh, again of the water and the spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is confused. I thought that I was going to be part of the kingdom of God because of who, which family I was born unto. How is it? Can a man go a second time? Marvel not, I say unto you, ye must be born again of the water and of the spirit. They were in a transition of revelation uh, and they began to see uh, that everything they had done in the natural uh, had spiritual implication. Uh, and when you read the book of Hebrews, uh, the key to the book of Hebrews uh, is greater things uh, than these. Uh, it is the shadow uh, and the fulfillment. Uh, it is the tabernacle in the heavenlies uh, and the shadow of the tabernacle. Uh, it is the... Th th 
like preaching. I'm supposed to be in Bible study tonight. And so there is this revelation, this, this changing that is beginning to happen. And in the middle of this transition of revelation, there is powerful prophecy all the way in the book of Joel connected to the paradigm of mourning. Part of this shift, this understanding of who they are and, and, and the Old Testament tabernacle and the whole construct of God's people was being shifted and a revelation of its fulfillment and along with all of those things was a new revelation concerning mourning and it was prophesied all the way back in Joel chapter 2 Joel chapter 2 verse 11 through 13 says this and the Lord shall utter his voice before his army for his camp is very great for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Listen. Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart. Remember, mourning was always attached with his people, letting their heart turn from God. And God would bring them to a place of judgment. And the judgment was designed to turn their hearts back to him and so the morning was a part of them reposturing themselves from a disposition of rebellion to a disposition of submission from a disposition of disobedience to a disposition of obedience and so he's prophesying all the way in Joel and he says rend your heart and not your garments he said, there's coming a time when I don't want you to fall on the floor in ashes and tear your clothes apart, but I want you to get in hold of the inner man and tear apart the heart that is exceeding and desperately wicked above all things. He says, rend your heart and not your garments. And turn unto the Lord, your God, for he is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. And if you keep on reading in verse 23, it says, Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former rain moderately. My God, I wish I could preach that. And he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And so they were used to sackcloth and ashes. And listen, Periodic shaving to roll back the shame. Periodic shaving to display humility. In the Old Testament, a display of humility happened in moments of judgment. But in the New Testament, humility is not a, an event, it's a lifestyle. In the New Testament, a humble disposition is now to be a lifestyle of a child of God and not just a periodic event to repent over. 
Are you with me tonight? The scripture directly correlates facial hair and its removal with humility. James chapter 4 verse 10. This is the language of the New Testament. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Periodic shaving was a sign of mourning and humility. But if we are going to live a continual lifestyle of humility, then we should always be clean shaven, representing a continuous state of humility. I don't want to just humble myself uh, when I have made God angry uh, and I need to, to show myself humble before God, but I want to walk uh, in humility before God. I want to walk. Uh, well, come on, somebody. Am I in the right church tonight? Humble yourselves uh, in the sight of the Lord uh, and he shall lift you up. And when you study the context of James chapter 4 in the previous verses, what is he dealing with? Verse number 7, three verses prior to this, he says, Submit yourselves therefore to God. He is directly tying a, a look of humility with our submission to God. The context here is submission. And the context of 1 Corinthians 11 is about submission and the head of the man and what he does with his hair, the hair of his head. Your face is part of your head as it pertains to his disposition of submission to God. 1 Corinthians 11 is about submission. When a woman cuts which it says if she cuts it, it's just like she shaved it. If she cuts her hair, she dishonors her head. Now, when you, when you read that, you automatically think her physical head. That's not what it's saying. She, when she cuts her hair, she dishonors her head. Who's her head? Her husband is her head. She dishonors the spiritual authority in her life. And so likewise, the man does the same thing by covering his head. He dishonors his head. But when he uncovers his head and he is clean shaven, he is showing humility and submission to his headship or covering. Who is the head of man? Christ. We didn't have that revelation in the Old Testament. And so what we did with our hair and on our head was not the reflection of headship and submission, but as a new level of revelation in the Old Testament, as a fulfillment of understanding authority of Christ and the headship of the house, God said, I want you to let your hair become that thing that shows your submission to authority and headship in your life. The man says, I am removing my covering and making myself vulnerable because I have a covering that is given to me by God. This concept is found all the way in the book of Genesis. 
When Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were in submission to God and obedience to God, they had no revelation of their nakedness. But when rebellion entered the picture, the first thing that happens is they become aware of their nakedness and they try to cover themselves. And their covering dishonors their headship. They cut their headship because of disobedience. And what's the first thing God does when he speaks to them? Take off that covering. If you're going to be covered, you're going to be covered with what I give you as a covering. Come on, somebody. And so the beard in the Old Testament was a sign of manhood for the Hebrew. But in the New Testament, character becomes the determining sign of manhood. Oh, that was real good, right? Some, somebody should have ran the aisles right there. I'm going to say it one more time. Growing a beard was the sign of manhood to the Hebrew culture. But in the New Testament, it was the development of your character that defined your manhood. Hey! For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says in verse 11, When I was a child, I spake as a child, and I understood as a child. This is powerful. He directly relates his maturity as a man to his ability to escape childhood behavior. If you want to measure the character of a man, look at his ability to not act like a child. That's why when you become a man, you should quit pouting like a child. When you get upset, you should quit losing your temper like a child. Oh, come on, I'm not backing up. Come on. Quit beating your chest like an ape and learn self-control if you want to display that you're a man. When I became a man, I quit acting like a kid. I quit, I quit letting, having diarrhea of the mouth when I, when I was angry. I just say what I want to say. That's what kids do before they're learned and are taught and are disciplined by mom and dad. This is good preaching. Manhood isn't defined by growing a beard or by any of the accoutrements uh, that the world wants to call manhood. Manhood is defined uh, by your ability uh, to restrain yourself. Uh, the Bible says a man that can control his spirit is greater than a man that can take uh, a city. The New Testament shifts and begins to deal with the inner man. When I was a child, I spake as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I grew a beard. Oh, wait a second. That's not what it said. That's not what he said. He said, I put away childish things. That's not talking about Care Bears and Tonka trucks. 
It's talking about, he says it right here, how you speak, how you understand, and how you think. Can I, I just feel like God stopped me right here. One of the things that are that is emasculating even apostolic men is they are they have spiritually never grown up to be a man. They have a man's body, but they still think like a child. They six foot four, 240 pounds, but they still act like a kid when they get angry and they want to leave. Ooh, I'm preaching real good. They got to shave twice a day, uh, but they've never learned the responsibility uh, of getting up every day uh, and providing for their family. Uh, and they come on uh, and they still want to lay in bed uh, and be lazy. I'm preaching. Uh, he said, when I became a man, uh, I put away childish thinking. Uh, I put away childish speech. Uh, I put away childish understanding. Am I in the right church tonight? Come on, God's calling. The only thing standing in the way of some men's fulfillment of greatness is them growing up and putting away childish things. You want to know what's powerful about the text? God doesn't put the childish things away. You have to do it. I said you have to do it. You have to make the decision, I'm not acting like a child anymore. You have to make the decision, I'm not thinking like a child thinks. Stingy. Didn't get my way. You got to put childish things away. Ooh, this is good preaching. I declare unto you some men use exterior things like facial hair to try to hide their immaturity, to try to compensate for the lack of maturity in their life. I said some. If you're getting mad, you might be part of the some, or you wouldn't be getting mad. Paul did not say, I grew a beard. He said, I changed my behavior. Prayer was sporadic in the Old Testament and mainly done by the priests and the prophets. They didn't have the understanding of access to the throne of God. And so they only viewed his presence as behind the veil. And in most cases, those priests would shave their beard during these sacred times of entering into God's presence. But in the New Testament, prayer is not sporadic, uh, but it becomes continuous. And when Jesus threw his hands in the air uh, and said, it is finished, uh, the veil was rent. Uh, and now we have access, uh, for we have not an high priest, uh, which cannot be... We have a revelation that now God wants us uh, to come boldly uh, before the throne uh, of grace. Uh, God wants us uh, to enter into his throne room. Uh, God wants us uh, to get in his presence. Uh, we have access in prayer. And if we're going to walk with God in prayer, we cannot approach him without humility. We cannot present ourselves unholy our spirit, our soul, or our body. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
1 Timothy 2 and 8. Music, come. Give them some hope. It's only 9.15. 1 Timothy 2 and 8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Luke 18 and 1, he said, and he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. And so perpetual prayer means perpetual humility. I want to always be ready to enter his presence. I want to live every day my spirit, my soul, my body in a way uh, that does not prohibit me, uh, that does not put a roadblock uh, from me entering into his presence, uh, that doesn't present a barrier uh, or a restriction uh, or any kind of complication uh, that would keep me uh, from instantaneously uh, being able to enter uh, the throne room uh, of God uh, at any given moment in time. Uh, I want to be able to say, Jesus, uh, and be sitting at the foot of my Savior. Perpetual prayer means perpetual humility. And so what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians is praying and prophesying and how your head is to be in alignment in such a way that you are displaying the headship and then we understand that prayer is to be done without ceasing. Jewish custom was that you could not trim the corner of the beard or shave the hair between the hair of the head and the chin. So some men would try to say, well, I'm just going to do it the way they did it. I'm going to grow a beard and I'm just not going to ever trim it. Well, if you're going to live under one part of the law, then you got to live under the whole law. It's not a buffet that you get to just pick and choose. And so if you're going to do that, you've got to live under the law the entire way. And if that's the case, then you're going to miss heaven because nobody is making it into heaven without being born again of the water and the spirit. And under the law, there was no redemption plan of being born again. I'm almost finished tonight. Facial hair has always had cultural significance. Even in the secular world, it has always spoke about identity. Did you know that men's facial hairstyles all have names? They do. Why? Because they have meaning to them. They reflect something about your attitude and your personality. They speak to how you are identifying yourself. And so, I like to keep this handy. I've got a little chart that shows some, visual, some visuals of some different styles. If the media team... He's working on it right now. You're late. Hurry up. I'm going to dock your pay. Help us, Jesus. And so 
He'll have that up in a moment. Maybe some of these names will ring a bell to you. You have all of these styles, and here are some of the names. Are you ready? The battle axe. The dude. The chin curtain. The chin strap. These are all real names. The chin puff. The low rider. Some of y'all get that later. The R&B special. The ringmaster. The sparrow. The Chinese beard. The classic fool beard. The Garibaldi. Or how about the mutton chops? Or the Hollywood? Or the French fork? Or the friendly mutton chops? As opposed to the unfriendly ones, I guess. The Egyptian goatee? The mustache? Or how about the Zappa? Or the Balbo? Or the Ducktail? Or the ever popular Fu Manchu? Or the Klingon? Or the Siamese beard? Or the Dictator? Or the Old Dutch? Or the Super Wizard? Or the Soul Patch? Or the Van Dyke? Or the Ala Suvardi? Or the Cop Stash? Or the Hungarian? Or the Imperial Napoleon? Or the Chin Stripe? Or the Handlebar? Or the Toothbrush? Or the Ladybird? Or the Hullaby? Or the Franz Josef? Or the Anchor? Or the Deli? Or the Petite Goatee? Maybe that's for the girls, I don't know. Or the Pencil Stash? <laughs> or the Deer Tail? Or the Wind Field? These all have names because they evoke a particular identity in society. Even the popular goatee. Do you know where the goatee comes from? How many of you remember the Greek satire? The Roman fawn who is half goat and half man. Anybody remember that Greek character? One of his characteristics is he has a pointed he has pointed facial hair protruding from the chin. He was a symbol of sexual promiscuity. And the pointed chin hair was symbolic of something very inappropriate. For a man, facial hair becomes augmentation. An ability to self-express. who you are trying to portray. Facial hair is to a man what cosmetics are to a woman. 
We know this because nature teaches us. But before nature taught us, God taught us. Women, what you do with your hair, and men, what you do with your hair and your face is important to God because it shows what's going on in the heart. One biblical scholar wrote this. He said in the 60s, men used facial hair to symbolize rebellion against authority and acceptance of an immoral lifestyle. Often the same men wore long hair, which violates biblical teaching. The trend in Hollywood and with musical superstars is to wear the unshaven look. Why? Because they're trying to look sexy. Y'all afraid of that word? It's true. You go do your research. George Clooney and different ones trying to get that sex appeal. But when you get the Holy Ghost, you ain't trying to look sexy. I should be getting way more amens right there. Young lady, when you get the Holy Ghost, you shouldn't be trying to look sexy. If you look sticky, you'll keep attracting flies. Sexy ought to be relegated to you and your wife or your, you and your husband when God gives you one. Sexy doesn't belong outside of the marriage. It is sensuality. It's vanity. And so here are some popular reasons that, 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 that you hear from men about why they want to grow facial hair. Some men will say they want to grow it so that they are more masculine. I think we addressed that in Scripture tonight. That is out of biblical order. God doesn't want you to display a look that is your attempt at machismo. He doesn't need your machismo. He needs you to be hu humble and submitted to him. He's your covering. God will give you the manhood that you need. There's no more manlier man than a man full of the Holy Ghost and submitted and obedient to, to God. You can't duplicate that kind of manhood by growing a beard. Man, running around trying to be Chuck Norris. <laughs> you all know Chuck Norris had an, that death had a near Chuck Norris experience, right? Some of y'all trying to make you laugh. You want to know what? You want to know what Chuck Norris's email address is? It's gmail at chucknorris.com. <laughs> your character will speak for your manhood you want to look masculine get up every day and go to work you want to look masculine take care of your kids and your family 
You'll never look more masculine to your wife than when you get up every day and you hustle to put food on the table and pay the bills and provide it. You'll never, she don't care if you got a Fu Manchu or a, come on, or five days of stubble on you. What she wants to know is have you put away childish things and are you, come on, some, I need all the ladies to help me tonight. You want to look like a man? Be faithful to your wife in marriage. You want to look like a man? When a woman approaches you, say, not today, Satan. <laughs> Some men will say that they wear it to enhance their image. That is the embracing of vanity. You're promoting your image above the glory of God in your life. Some men grow it because they want to appear more intimidating. They have a lack of confidence. Come on, somebody. They say, makes me look more beastly. You know, that's a thing in society right now. He's a beast. All the men try, I'm trying to be a beast. Ugh. A beast. Let me tell you something, sir. God created you to be more than a beast. He created you to take dominion over the beasts of the field. If you're trying to be a beast, you are lowering yourself uh, from the expectation uh, and what God has called. He created you to be more than a beast. Being a man is more than being a beast. Society trying to associate beards and facial hair with the, the look of toughness and strength. It is a false representation of strength and manhood. You're not a beast, you're a man of God. Pride is the opposite of humility. Proverbs 6 and 17 says one of the things God hates is a proud look. Come on, sir. Part of our challenge is we, we don't want to, we, we got pride. The Bible says to avoid proud look some men wear it because somebody told them they look too young so they think that somehow that facial hair is going to make you look more mature so you got all these young men trying to make it look like they're growing something borrowing their sister's mascara to try to make it look <laughs> Put a little milk on your face. Call the cat over. She'll lick it right off. It'll be all cleaned up. Maturity doesn't come from what you can grow on your face. Maturity comes from the inner man. Your ability to be responsible. Your ability to be dependable. That's what creates maturity. Your ability to think like God wants you to think. I've heard men say before, I, I, I wear it because somebody told me I look like a woman without it. 
Boy, let somebody roll up and tell me that. I'm going to leave that one right there. Or I've heard some men say, I wear it because my wife likes it. Do you seek to please man or seek to please God? The Bible says that if you seek to please man, you cease to be the servant of God. I love you, honey. If you got the right one, she's going to love you whether you got something on your face or not. Her love for you... Uh, is not predicated on your facial hair. Come on. If you got the right one, she's going to love you for the right reasons. She's going to be attracted to you for the, come on, I need some help in the building. People's opinion of you does not trump God's opinion of you. Let's stand. I've heard some men that wear it because they're insecure. Maybe they have a disfigurement or something and they feel like they have to hide it. Ma'am, sir, hopefully sir. <laughs> I've seen a few. We'll understand it better by and by. And some things we understand better right now. Sir, you need to get in the Holy Ghost until God takes the reproach out of your life. And you understand that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And you don't need anything to hide behind. You don't need a mask that you put on or that you grow out to, to hide anything behind or to cover up. Come on, somebody. Beards worn by Jewish men never had anything to do with image. It always had to do with the revelation of covering. In the New Testament, we uncover the head so we can be covered by Christ. And if hair and beards were not important, then God would not have given us so many specific instructions about it. I'm going to leave you with this tonight. Rarely in society... Do you see men who are in important roles wearing facial hair? Why? Because nature itself has taught us. And it's widely understood, whether they recognize it as a biblical principle, it's widely understood that facial hair is a look of uncleanness. And in some cases can even have the look of dishonesty or intimidation. Many of you know I worked for many years in corporate America before going full-time in ministry. One of the largest wireless telecommunications companies in the world. And part of their dress standard. These people were not apostolic. They were just good business people. Part of their dress standard of excellence for the Pope was you could not have facial hair. If you were going to have a job, you had to be clean shaven because they understood that a look of trust and honesty was represented by clean shavenness. And if a worldly institution has that level of revelation, how much more should God's men have a revelation of presenting themselves in a way that is excellent in society, that is a representation of honesty and the God that they serve?
Acts chapter 16. I promise you this is the last. I'm closing. Some of y'all said, how many doors does he have on the message? <laughs> this is the last door. Acts chapter 16. You understand that the apostle Paul is a father figure to young Timothy, a preacher, a young minister. And he is go on an evangelistic journey. And he knows that God wants to use young Timothy in a powerful way. But there's a challenge. You see, young Timothy's father's a Greek. He's not, he's not completely a Hebrew. And he's uncircumcised. And he understands in that day and age and time that they will not accept his ministry or his, or his revelation from God because his outward appearance is not reflective of a life of consecration in their culture. And so he takes young Timothy and says, if you are going to be an influence in this world the way you need to be, you can't let fleshly things hinder you. I wonder how many men struggle and miss opportunities of greatness in their life because they struggle with trivial things of their flesh. When God is wanting to open doors of greatness and for his glory to be reflected from you. Amen, somebody. Can we lift our hands all over the house tonight? I'm finished. I'm finished. I wonder if we could lift our hands all over this house before we're dismissed tonight. It's, it's Bible study, but I wonder if we could take a few moments. Come on, that's all right. I see people coming to the altar to pray. Maybe we could just take a few moments and move to the altar and, and, and open our hearts and say, God, let your word find its place in my heart tonight. Let your word find its place in my spirit tonight, God. Come on, would you lift up your hands? Lift up your voice in the name of Jesus. Come on, I surrender to you, God. I surrender to you, Jesus. In the name of Jesus. That's right. That's right. Come on, come on. Come on, in the name of Jesus. Holiness. Holiness is what I long for. Holiness is what I need. Holiness, holiness is what you want for me, for me. So take my heart and mold it. Take Take my heart.